When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And this is show number 99 for Will and I together as Hopping Mad. And so I wanted to start out by saying thank you to Justice Putnam and to David Waldman, who really gave us or gave me my start in in doing this and doing this podcasting thing. David was the first person to invite me to his show to talk about MMT, and I was so nervous. I remember that day so vividly. My book, The Smart Bunny's Guide to Debt Deficit and Austerity, had been released in June of 2013, and it took me a few months to get up the courage to send it to David, and he was kind enough to invite me on K-Grow in the morning to talk about it, which was very, very sweet. After a few months, uh, that led to a weekly spot, an actual weekly spot on the after show with Justice Putnam. And Justice has been giving me space on Netroots Radio every week for about three and a half years, which is amazing. To, to talk about modern monetary theory and to have that space has been really wonderful. And basically, that's been since, um, I guess, September of 2014 that I started on Justice's show. And I think, Will, you had started a little before that. Isn't that right? Yeah, a little bit before that. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but it was I, I did start sometime before you did. I've been podcasting for almost four years now, which is just uh, crazy. I actually had no idea it was that long. And the reason I stumbled across that and the reason I figured that out this week was not because it was show number 99 for us, but because the I wanted to use notes that I had on MMT framing and I knew I had talked about it before. So I went back to get my notes. They were from my 26th podcast, which I gave on April 2nd of 2015. So <laughs> I had just absolutely no idea it was that it was that long ago. And that was a big surprise to me. So for those of you who have stuck with us from the after show through all of Hopping Mad. We really appreciate it. Hopping Mad, we're only on show 99 because we had some long breaks when I had major surgery and because we lose time every January into February just because of my day job. But other than that, Will and I try really hard to be with you as much as we can every week, uh, our day jobs and holidays permitting, and we love this. And we love this opportunity and we thank you and we thank Netroots Radio for giving it to us. It's a pretty cool thing. One of the things I figured out when I was looking at this is that, of course, of course I started this because it's really important for progressives to understand that we already have the fiscal space, the, the money, the freedom to do what we want to act on our agenda that already exists. It's just that neoliberal economists don't want us to know that. So when we talk about things like job guarantee and that kind of thing, the money for that exists already today. We don't have to come up with it. We don't have to figure out how to pay for it. It's already there. So 
that having talked about this for four years now, and I realized that when I started talking about this on a weekly basis, I do actually think I was the only podcaster who was talking about MMT every week. But now there's this increasing flock. And it's so exciting. Every time I hear about a new podcast, a new blog, and Will is is uh, talking about some new ideas for promoting MMT that are really exciting. I don't know if you want to talk about that right now. Do you, Will? Um, so it's very early stages yet, but I'd kind of like to put together an MMT news hub that sort of gathers all of these disparate voices into one place so that the larger MMT movement can work together in ways that we haven't before. Because... One of the things about MMT is that it is not uh, an ideological thing. It is it is simply a description of how our money actually works. So the way that we grow beyond ourselves and make sure that that we get rid of the false equivalencies is by pointing out that that it uh, it doesn't belong to one small segment or one small movement. It belongs to to everyone, and. What that means is we can grow this group of voices that can work together and and really push these ideas forward. Because the reason we don't have what we need from from our governments is because we are given these false equivalencies. So I think a diversity of voices is how we get to to that. So I'm 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 in talks in early stages about how we set that up, and I've got a couple of accounts that I've registered to do that. But uh, I, I will make an announcement when we are, when we are ready to go and have everything together about the fact that that's coming. And if you have any ideas about that or you want to send me a podcast that you think should be part of the group and groups of people I should be talking to, then feel free to tweet me. Uh, I'm at WillMcLeod99 on Twitter. So just say hey or tweet at the uh, Will and Arliss account. So how cool is that? Um, So uh, on top of all that, it seems like, really, it seems like now not just every week, but several times a week that leading lights from MMT, people like Randall Ray or Stephanie Kelton or Pavlina Cherneva or Fidel Kaboob are interviewed on mainstream media. For instance, this week, there was an article in the Washington Post about uh, that interviewed MMT economists and talked about modern monetary theory. And job guarantee is suddenly absolutely everywhere. You cannot turn around without you know, stubbing your toe on people talking about job guarantee. And I think it's very, very likely to end up part of the new Democratic Party platform. So the first time we had J.D. Alt on Hopping Mad, he was talking about his book, The Millennial's Money. And I think, Will, that you'll agree agree with me on this. It's becoming more and more clear by the day that millennials are flocking to MMT in particular because it's going to be one of the major tools that they use to get their agenda accomplished. So it isn't just that, you know, there are a bunch of academics talking about MMT. Grassroots people are talking about MMT. And that is the real progressives, Steve, Steve Grumbine, who we had on, which is a big grassroots movement. Those folks are all talking about MMT. And there are some academics that are part of that organization, but it is, it is very much a grassroots group. And MMT is one of their core um, agenda items. So it is amazing to me when I look at the growth just since I started podcasting. Not that 
you know, not that I did this. The hard work has been absolutely done by the leaders of MMT. But um, I am uh, honored to have played my little part in my little corner of the carrot patch on this subject. Uh, it's very exciting to me because I feel like we're going to get where it is we need to go. And I did not feel that way when I started. So, um, yay. It's, yeah. it's really exciting. And that has happened, a lot of it, dear listeners, because of the work you all have done in pushing for MMT and the stuff that you guys are doing out there uh, activist-wise and just the conversations we have. Um, one of the things that, that came up in my conversation with Steve Grumbine and, and the Real Progressives recently was uh, um, the idea that, that this sort of propaganda we're dealing with on MMT has suffused everything. It's in, it's in books, it's in TV shows, it's in, you know, uh, basic comments we'd make about, you know, paying for stuff. Um, and it's, it's the work that people do in ordinary conversations. You just say, well, that's not really how it works. Uh, and then to have the answers on hand to, to respond to that. So thank you for the, the part you listener have been playing in this. And if you don't feel like you've been playing much of a role, there are a lot of options. Um, there are groups to join, people to talk to, uh, media you can share like Hopping Mad and, and others. So, Well, um, and even just retweeting things that MMT, yeah. uh, you know, MMT posts that come up onto Twitter, even just retweeting things makes a difference because it helps build that critical mass. And mm -hmm. I have been taking the Financial Times, the big, <laughs> you know... The pink uh, paper. Yes, for three years. And I was reading an article on the Chinese holdings of U.S. treasuries, so Chinese holdings of U.S. debt, and I just lost it this past week. I absolutely lost it. At first, I laughed, and then I just thought, okay, this is so wrong that for the very, very first time, I'm going to go on the FT in the comment section and comment on this because I can't shut up about how wrong this article is. So I hopped on to FT's website, and I logged in, and I, I uh, entered my comment and got in this lengthy conversation with a number of people. And um, in the middle of that, I got an invitation from an editor at the FT asking me to submit an article uh, to their opinion section about what I was saying. I was uh, a little shocked and slightly overwhelmed, but the point being, I was able to hold my own. And that is, in MMT, that's everything. And that's why it's so important. It just reinforced to me how important it is for us to get out there and have these conversations because you never know when something like that will happen, when some big organization will turn around and say, tell me more about that. So we, the, every word you say about MMT matters. So Talk it, talk it, talk it. And toward that end in my blog today, I'm talking about framing and I'm talking about that over the next few weeks, unless, you know, some world ending thing comes along in politics that diverts us temporarily. But I'll be talking about framing in some rather deep detail. And I'm introducing that today. Up next on Hopping Mad, though, we have Will talking about just war theory, which I'm really anxious to hear about here on Netroots Radio. Thank you.
Welcome back to Hopping Mad. In our active and ongoing conversations about Syria, I've heard a lot of people talk about whether the conflict is right or justified. And it's an interesting conversation, but one of the theories that I don't see discussed, that really ought to be discussed, is questions of just war theory. Uh, just war theory being something that normally would be part of my sprawling big ideas of the left or big ideas about progressivism that I like to discuss. But I think this should be the foundation of how democratic societies view conflict. And just to jump right in, just war theory is comprised of two giant criteria that have supporting criteria, but the two big chunks that, that will help you determine on an ethical level whether a war is justified are just ad bellum, which is the right to fight a war, and just in bello, which is correct conduct within a war. So if you start a war and you have a good reason to start that war, one that is ethically justified, and then you don't behave justly in conflict, then the war is not just. If you have no right to start a war and you start it anyway, it doesn't matter if your conflict is also just. Both criteria, um, just cause and just action, need to be met in order for a war to be just. In the context of, of all of this, when it cause, calls uh, on the just cause thing, um, there, are, there are a number of major points that I think are important. Most of us focus on the just action within a war, which is, is stuff that most people talk about when, it, when, it, when we're discussing war. It's, it's um, making sure to distinguish combatants, so soldiers, from non-combatants, from civilians, and avoiding at all costs hurting civilians. And possibly not at all costs, but doing everything you can to make a distinction between the civilian population and the military actors that you are fighting. Uh, and that includes wounded soldiers. So not bombing hospitals is really important as part of, part of this. It includes proportionality. We don't go in and carpet bomb Damascus, for example. Uh, we try to, to, to guarantee that the, the targets that we're attacking are you know, military targets. We don't want to hit civilian ones. It means not using chemical weapons or other indiscriminate weapons. It's all of those things we normally talk about. And, and those have been run round and round in ways that I think are important. But the place I think we need to focus is, is uh, just ad bellum, is just reasons to fight just cause, because that does not get enough discussion. And, and of course, the first part of that is having a just reason to go in. Is there imminent danger? Has a state acted in such a way that is so egregious a violation that it requires a military response? And number two, have you exhausted all diplomatic frameworks? And let's put this in the context of, of the Syrian war. These two points, I think, may have been satisfied. I, I want to say I don't necessarily agree with, with the decision to strike Syria, but I want to point out uh, just cause uh, is, is satisfied because of the Syrian use of internationally prohibited chemical weapons. Sarin gas is number one on the list of chemical weapons that are not to be used in the Chemical Weapons Convention. It is a Schedule One chemical weapon. And number two, uh, last resort, that means you're not, you've exhausted every diplomatic thing, would have been exhausted if we'd bothered to talk to the UN. That's the main issue here, is that we didn't go to the UN 
because we knew the Russians would veto it. We didn't go through the democratic or diplomatic processes like we ought to. Donald Trump didn't go to Congress and ask for the right to attack Syria either. So those are some major problems already, the lack of, of diplomacy. When it, so I don't think we've met the last resort criterion. However, we probably would have when diplomacy broke down at the UN. Because in the same way that, that we have a veto for our friends, the Russians have a veto for their friends. So there's a, there's a point at which the UN is doing its job by preventing another world war and helping big countries not go to war with each other, but it's not doing its job as far as guaranteeing peace to smaller nations and guaranteeing a process to resolve these, these things when they come up. If, if, you're, if the action you take under uh, just ad bellum, a just war, won't actually make a difference... That's is right it where I'm still getting. just okay. That is exactly where I'm getting. And the most important part of this, which is exactly where I was getting here, is probability of success. And this is where I think the the Syrian intervention falls apart. You can't start a war if you have no criteria for success, no way to to have a reasonable expectation that your strike will be successful, and and no way to, to, you know, judge whether or not there's going to be a positive outcome for the war. For example, the war in Iraq. We were going to bomb democracy and invade democracy into Iraq. I, yeah, I don't that know. works. Yeah, you, you, like, it, it's the entire Iraq war was not justified based on the probability of success. And we didn't even know what the probabilities for success were. If you remember living through the Iraq war as I do, the reason for going to Iraq changed like 10 times. During the course of the war, I had started off, oh, we're going to go after them because they, uh, they had something to do with 9-11. Oh, well, maybe they didn't have anything to do with 9-11, but they, they totally tried to assassinate George H.W. Bush. Or maybe that's not the reason uh, they got WMD, uh, but they don't have WMD, so it's about democracy. And their justification changed. And when the justification changes, the, the program you're trying to take for us to forward changes. I still don't know what success would have looked like in Iraq. I also don't know what it would have looked like in Afghanistan. I don't know what it looks like in Syria. What are we trying to achieve? What is the outcome we are looking for? What does success even look like? You can't judge probability of success unless you've been given the criteria by which success will be judged in the first place. And we haven't done that. So on that grounds, I don't think the Syria intervention is justified. And I further think that a lot of the, the conflicts we've been involved in fall apart when it comes to probability of success. If all we are doing by intervening is prolonging a war, that leads to more suffering in the long term, I would argue. I am not automatically against military conflict, but I, I am against stupid conflicts. And I think a conflict is stupid if all we're going to do is blow up some targets and make ourselves feel better about how little we're doing. So here's the situation we are. We have no way to judge a reasonable probability of success. And the UN is broken and won't function because in the same way that we will give our friends a pass, the Russians will give their friends a pass. So there's no option for that kind of multilateral intervention that international law requires. So I think 
the long-term solution we need to look at here diplomatically is regional governments. A lot of the conflicts that we've ignored that have led to genocide, people talk about Rwanda. People talk about the situation in Somalia. There, there was the Bring Back Our Girls movement. Um, there are a lot of issues that go on in Africa. Uh, and there have been French and American interventions in that continent recently. Uh, there was the war in Libya recently. And I think the diplomatic answer here is not so much the UN, which has trouble functioning because of how big it is and because of the geopolitical things. I think it's regional governments. I think taking Africa as, as an example, uh, the African Union is uh, a sort of regional government that is that is rising recently and becoming stronger recently. And I think if you cede international law in Africa to the African Union, to the Africans themselves, they'll be able to decide on what a just conflict is without the U.S. or the Russians or any other major power being involved. So they will be able to, to defend and support the international laws they have created for Africa themselves. And then it's our duty as other nations to support them or choose not to based on whether we consider what they're doing to be just. That, I think, is the diplomatic future, is having regional governments, building up the organization of American states, ASEAN in Asia, the European Union, to some extent the, the Confederation of Independent States, the CIS, which is uh, the post-Soviet world. These regional governments properly set up and properly functioning are going to be able to deal on an international law basis with these conflicts in ways that the big worldwide multilateral agreements don't seem to be capable of doing. And so I think the answer to conflicts like, like this one, when we start thinking about diplomacy, is to think about those regional governments and to think about regional control. Because I think that, that Americans, and by that I mean all of us here in the American hemisphere, uh, countries like Brazil and Chile and Argentina and Mexico are going to know the proper outcome working together diplomatically and on international law footing for something that's going on with one of their neighbors in the same way that Africans will know how better to deal with a situation in Rwanda than foreign powers coming in from across oceans and from continents away. And you won't have in those regional governments these big geopolitical situations. So if there was a Middle Eastern regional government that the Iranians and Saudis could actually participate in with the Jordanians on some kind of international law footing and along with the Turks, then they would know what best to do about Syria without there being a geopolitical conflict in Syria between the United States and Russia. And there would be an international law footing Middle Eastern solution to a Middle Eastern problem. And I think that's getting even more important as China steps up its role in creating satellite states. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, I think that becomes vitally, vitally important. Um, as we look at, at the growth of China, um, India is, is handling a lot of things internally right now. They are going through a lot of internal growth and process, but they're going to wake up here soon and get a lot more internationally active at some stage themselves. They're very inwardly focused right now, but they won't always be. You have the old uh, 
multi-power system, the EU is rising as a single entity, especially now that the Brits are leaving. Um, because Britain has always been sort of a reluctant EU member. So you're going to see a much more active EU in the future as well. And so when you have these big uh, global blocks of powerful nations and global powerful interests, of which the United States is one, uh, I think, and the Chinese rising as well, I think having this regionalist view and letting groups of nations decide on things where they live becomes much more important than the UN, which as we see is, is not functioning the way it's intended to. And so I think that that's the way forward for, for just war theory. And I think also, as I've said before, I don't think we talk about probability of success enough. Is an action that we're taking going to be successful? Um, I think we spend a lot of time talking about the weapon used, like drones or cruise missiles or whatever weapon is, rather than using the weapon in the first place. And I find that pretty problematic. Coming up, Arliss is going to be discussing MMT, as always, here on Hopping Mat. We're back on Hopping Mad, and I want to start out this section of framing giving you kind of the list of resources I'm drawing from for the whole series when I, these next several shows when I'm going to be talking about framing. So Lisa Connors and William Mitchell, Bill Mitchell, have a working paper, uh, 06-13 for the Center for Full Employment and Equity called Framing Modern Monetary Theory. Randall Ray has a series of blog posts from New Economic Perspectives called Framing MMT. Uh, I took notes at the MMT, the first international MMT conference last summer in a presentation given by Bill Mitchell, and a lot of my notes are incorporated in this. And uh, there's J.D. Alt's recent post at New Economic Perspectives, Framing the Progressive Platform, and also, of course, George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant, which is about framing in general. So what's a frame? A frame is the way we think about, in fact, it's the way we think and the way we communicate. There's neuro, neurobiological and behavioral research in support of the human need for framing or the fact that framing simply is. Framing reinforces and strengthens certain neurological pathways over others. And it's literally, therefore, part of our anatomy. It's physical. Frames are so powerful that they don't need to be explained. They're actually inherent. So we want to think it's easy for us to make the mistake of thinking about framing as being marketing, as being a slogan, and it's much more than that. We do not necessarily what I think of as build a frame, in other words, create a frame, we reinforce a frame that already exists. That's what you have to do to have a successful frame. You have to discover the frame that you are trying to reinforce. So an idea, a concept of a frame is something like more is associated with up. Happy is associated with up. Like she's really up today. She's climbing the corporate ladder. Those kinds of things. That's a frame. 
Less is associated with down. Sad is associated with down. He's really down in the dumps is classic framing. In terms of money, we meet, need to think of more as good and less as bad. Literally, everything we think about is encased in a frame of some sort. Our brains generate frames automatically as a way of organizing thought, which is why the phrase, if you're explaining, you're losing, is so true when it comes to political messaging. It's why repeating an opposing frame, even for the purpose of objecting to it, serves to reinforce it. So if you are repeating a frame, you are retrenching it. When we say no tax cuts for the rich, our subconscious brains hear tax cuts for the rich. Because the neoliberal meme is so pervasive, so completely out there, so flagrantly squashing everything else, that our brain automatically defaults to that. And in fact, it's really hard for MMT to come up with, for MMT economists, for MMT folks, to come up with ways to talk about modern monetary theory principles in a way that does not repeat neoliberal memes. And I screw it up all the time, all the time. And I kind of rededicated myself this last week to trying to do, do a better job with that. Because these cognitive linguistic frames are just, they're that powerful. So instead of repeating, we need to learn to reframe. And reframing is difficult because it appears that we're not directly answering or a challenge or a question. And one of the things that George Lakoff suggests is saying, is getting good at saying and switching frames using the phrase, wouldn't it be better if, you know, wouldn't it be better if we could all have the education that we need and desire in order to be successful in the marketplace? Wouldn't it be better if we were all able to receive the health care we need without fretting over being able to afford the health care we need? Lakoff talks about the two major political morality frames. So there's the strict father, which is the conservative and the nurturing parent. And notice that one of those is gender specific and one of those is not. And that is that actually has to do with the way progressives think. But the nurturing parent is, of course, the progressive narrative. There are and this is no surprise, there are biconceptuals, people who are conservative about some issues and progressive about others. So when we talk about being able to influence people or being able to change minds, those are the people that we can reach because you cannot change somebody who's really locked into the strict father narrative because they don't hear you. There's, there's, no, space in their, there's no space in their wiring in order to be able to hear you. And when we're talking about politics, remember that we're always talking about morality. Politics is morality. And as Fran and I were saying, we must continually, consistently come from our values. That's where we need to speak. It's not spin or manipulative propaganda. We need to talk honestly from our values. And something I learned from Lakoff's book when I was just kind of going back through it this time, it, it stuck with me more than maybe it had in the past when I read it the first time was that when talking to conservatives who may be biconceptuals 
in some ways, get them to talk about a time when they did something good for someone else. In other words, activate their empathetic pathways. And that is a way into talking about other areas where empathy matters, where empathy applies, which is basically the entire progressive agenda. When people are coming from a place of empathy, it's easier to get them to identify with at least part of what matters to you. Macroeconomic concepts are truly difficult to frame. And this is a little bit of what I was saying earlier, because they're complex. They take a long time to prove or disprove. In other words, it's not something you can just, you know, run an experiment on in a lab and suddenly have proof for. And in so many cases, they're difficult to uh, illustrate in a concrete way. MMT has not gained traction as quickly as it should have because our framing has not been sufficient to the task. And I know this first paw because it's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book originally, my book, the Smart Bunny's Guide to Def De De Deficit and Austerity, to try to tell the MMT story in a new way. And at the time I wrote that, it was the simplest explanation of MMT out there. And that's why I wrote it. Because almost everything else out there at the time about MMT was by economists for economists, or for people who are coming from a very high level of economic knowledge. And my book isn't that. My book is speaking to people who have very little time, who just, you know, want to take a quick pass at it. And that's why I targeted it that way. We need to be able to speak in those ways. But MMT has learned from past mistakes, and we don't entirely have the answers yet, but we're gaining on it. And that's why I'm talking about it for the next couple of weeks. That's why it's so important. Next up on Happy Mad, we have an interview with David Waldman from KGRO in the Morning. David is talking about congressional committee mechanisms and how investigative committees in Congress work with the Department of Justice here on Hopping Mad. back on Hopping Mad. And today for the interview, I'm sitting down with David Waldman of KGRO in the Morning from Netroots Radio fame. David is also a lawyer and he's really a process expert. He knows a great deal about how process works from his time on the Hill. And that's why I wanted him here today, because I'm interested in not just um, what's going on with Rod Rosenstein and the Comey memos, but how the Justice Department and its work fits with investigative committees in Congress and their work. And I should tell you that Will had to run to the doctor. So uh, as we are last week, we are without Will again. This week, he promises to be here next week. David, welcome. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, okay, sorry to hear about Will, but I'm sure it'll be that Yes, <laughs> it was one of those things that were just like, oh no, they can fit me in, I've got to go. Yeah. So he scampered off. Uh, so David, let me start with, the Comey memos broke. We're recording on Friday. And, you know, the whole world could have blown up by Monday when this airs. But from <laughs> where we're sitting right now, the Comey memos broke yesterday. 
And so Rosenstein released them and he therefore um, got himself out from under the thumb of the of Devin Nunez and, and Goodlad and Gowdy, who were all leaning on him for, um, you know, basically they were trying to box him in. They were trying mm-hmm. to build a box so that they could either impeach him or at least rebuke him and make it easier for Trump to fire him. At least that's what I think their strategy was. But he just had the memos redacted and he released them. Yes. Uh, right. So he, he at least is temporarily out of the one trap they thought they were setting. Right. So but here's my question. So when there is an actual investigation in process within the Justice Department, the FBI, you know, main justice itself, wherever, when that is in process and it's running in parallel to investigations that are going on in the House and the Senate, how do those committees interact with justice over um, documents, over information? Because to me, in this instance with Rosenstein, I knew that the minute, and everybody knew, including Rod Rosenstein, that the minute those documents hit um, the House, they were going to be instantaneously leaked, that Devin Nunez or whomever would, you know, make a beeline for friends in the press. But, and, you know, and that's its own problem. But how does, when it's the other way around, after we've taken the house in 2018 and mm. we're doing the investigating and we want to get information from justice, we're going to want to be able to get information. So, and, uh, and hopefully not to leak it to just actually have the information for use behind closed doors in investigation. But how do those things flow back and forth? I simply don't understand how, one can keep from stepping on the toes of the other. Um, well, uh, they typically, uh, they can't. Uh, they, they step on one another's toes all, all the time. And uh, the usual practice in Congress, uh, and, and in particular in a Democratic Congress, when there is a conflict that doesn't involve suspected wrongdoing by the either the Justice Department or some executive branch for whom the Justice Department or any other uh, agency is covering, uh, is to back off and to simply say, uh, out of an abundance of caution from the example of Oliver North, uh, congressional committees tend to give great weight to uh, warnings and being waved off by the Justice Department or any other uh, agency that, uh, that that releasing the information that the committees are seeking might jeopardize some Justice Department or other independent investigation or prosecution, and they and they tend to stay away. Uh, these guys, of course, this is this is sort of an inverse of that that problem. They are hoping to ruin the investigation and right. to prejudice it and to invalidate any convictions that might come about. Uh, so there's no disincentive there for them to be careful or to tread lightly. Uh, the, the heavier the footsteps, the more likely it is that anybody who's being prosecuted or, or has already been perhaps convicted, uh, that it will prejudice any other cases 
and, and that's what they're they're hoping to do. In addition to leaking the information, so um, this is sort of a, a new situation. Uh, yeah, but it's it's got its roots in well uh, every other bit of Republican executive wrongdoing in the United States over the past half century. Well, there, you know, prior to this, we really did have a set of norms that even Republicans stuck to most of the time, but those are gone now. It's, you know, it's all bets are off. So would you tell everybody how it worked during the North investigation? Because I remember very, very vividly watching every single moment of North testifying. Yeah, well, uh, the, the best, I guess the short answer to what happened with Oliver North was, of course, there was a there, there was an independent counsel investigation. I, I, I'm trying, I'm struggling to recall whether we were working under independent counsel or uh, special prosecutor. I think it was a special prosecutor. Uh, but uh, what ended up happening with him, of course, uh, in addition to there being a, a congressional inquiry into Iran-Contra, there was, of course, a prosecution uh, that was proceeding in parallel. And, uh, well, the real difficulty, and I don't really know why the reaction has been what it's been since then, where they just back off of everything. But the real difficulty was that North had been granted a uh, immunity deal in exchange for his congressional testimony. And uh, it some people think that he then purposefully used that platform to admit to things that if they had been admitted to the prosecution in his criminal case, he simply would have gone to and stayed in, in jail. Uh, so there was a there was a very specific conflict, I think, that was set up between the congressional immunity that he had been given and, and the not no grant of immunity uh from the prosecution in the criminal case and uh, the cross-pollination between the two was what ended up destroying the uh, the validity of his conviction. Uh, since then, it's just sort of been the, uh, the norm to stay away from anything where there's a criminal prosecution, a criminal investigation outside uh, being conducted by another, by, by the, DOJ or any other agency when Congress is investigating. They just simply say, well, we'll get what we can get, but we need to leave the prosecuting to the Department of Justice and not do anything that would interfere with or contaminate, cross-contaminate the, uh, the, the prosecution, uh, which I think is maybe an overreaction to what happened with Oliver North. Or, um, if you limit yourself to not granting anybody in immunities – and uh, accept Fifth Amendment, please, in investigative committees that really shouldn't be this much of a problem. But then, of course, they'll, people will just plead the fifth to everything and you won't get anything. And so uh, I guess in that sense, it's a wash. Uh, we could you know, congressional committees could back off and not ask questions at all or just sit there and hear the Fifth Amendment invoked over and over and and get no answers. So. It's uh, I, I guess it ends up being a wash one way or the other, but uh, it has gotten in the way of effective uh, congressional oversight. Anytime they stumble upon something that really needs prosecution, they kind of have to back away and allow the DOJ to take care of it. But if, if the DOJ is the subject of the investigation, you're, you, you see that there's a problem. 
And is there a difference between Senate and House in terms of how the committees operate when they're looking at, at those kinds of information, or do they have the same powers and the same reach? Because they, they both have subpoena power. Same, Yeah, pretty much the same uh, powers as between the, the Judiciary Committees in both occasional variances in the uh, internal committee rules. Uh, you know, Senate, of course, being the Senate, they tend to be a lot more deferential to the minority there. Uh, well, when it suits them. I mean, obviously, in the in the Senate, they very frequently, and especially in the Judiciary Committee, will change rules as necessary. But uh, the House tends to be uh, much more uh, much more driven by the the chair, and and, and there seems to be less uh, resistance to things the chair wants to do on the House side, and that that also sometimes stems from the House chair's ability to run roughshod over the minority. The, the, the tradition in the Senate has been, particularly in that committee, uh, one of cooperation between the chair and the ranking member and not really the case in the House. But they're, they're ultimately their powers, once there's a decision to issue a subpoena and to solicit testimony, is pretty much the same. So what is the mechanism? Do they uh, send letters to for the committees to um, have a conversation with or communicate with justice? Do they send letters back and forth? Do they have committees and representatives that sit down and talk to each other? How do they, how does this happen and who determines how this happens? Uh, for most communications, yeah, that's the, uh, well, the, the, the committee staff at the direction of the chair will communicate to the department itself, and the department has liaison officers as well. It's uh, it's not necessarily something that's really going on between the chair and the secretary or the attorney general in the case of justice, so much as it is between top staff who draft the letters and get the chairman's signature on it and send it off, and uh, it goes to the liaison officer who's responsible for drafting a response and getting the AG's signature on it. So it, it happens mostly at the staff level. Um, but uh, it, it will start, I mean, the, this, this has an escalating process where it starts with uh, sometimes just members of the committee rather than the chair uh, drafting inquiries and putting them in letter form and sending them off to well, whatever, you know, whether it's the attorney general or the secretary of agriculture or whoever has in oversight over whichever uh, agency they're looking into, you can always just pose questions. Uh, it's just that uh, in order to compel the agency to answer, uh, if you're just asking routine questions, a single member can write a letter and ask questions and the agency will answer. If you're asking questions that might put them in some legal jeopardy. They might simply refuse or ignore your letter or say, talk to me when you have the agreement of the chair of my oversight committee, and then we'll talk about whether and how we'll answer you. And it escalates from there. If they continue to refuse to answer and the chair gets involved and they still won't answer, you can summon them to a hearing. And if you're still not getting answers or information, then the committee will start thinking about whether or not they want to subpoena that information. And depending on which committee you're talking about, uh, that's a uh, 
simpler or more complicated process. Some committees like the Government Oversight Committee and like uh, Judiciary Committee who do a lot of this sort of work, uh, on the House side at least, make it a lot easier for the chair to unilaterally uh, issue, uh, well, certainly to write the letters and to issue the subpoenas. Uh, other committees require uh, bipartisan agreement or some number of uh, of the membership to sign on. And uh, once you get to the point where you've subpoenaed information and there's still resistance, then the processes merge again. And you, if you really want to hold someone in contempt, uh, either of the House or the Senate or of the Congress uh, as, as a whole, that's when uh, it, it, all the process merges back again. And now you're talking about, well, now we really have to have a formal vote. It's not something that the chair can do by themselves. So there, there's a whole series of uh, steps really designed to, uh, well, make it take as long as possible and <laughs> give as, lot of, as many fights or as many fronts to the fight as possible so that uh, everybody has a cooling off period or an opportunity to back down. Because when you get to the point where the Congress is demanding something formally in the form of a subpoena and the executive branch is simply saying, you're not going to get it no matter what, you really then you've walked into a constitutional crisis and it happens fairly frequently and the, they just they need to give themselves as much time and room as possible to find someone to find some way to back away. That's actually that's actually my next question because you know let's say we get to you know um, post the 2018 Congress being seated and there are, and the Democrats are running the House and hopefully the Senate as well and they um, request a bunch of information from Sessions Justice Department and Sessions just says uh, no yeah well he will and right. there really isn't anything to to do about that, that any committee of Congress has been willing to do for a very long time. The, the problem, we, we've had the problem a lot, uh, last had it during the George W. Bush administration. And before that, the George H.W. Bush administration and then the Reagan administration, basically every Republican. I was going to say there's a theme uh, there. <laughs> yes, right. Every Republican executive, every Republican administration has had this problem with every Democratic Congress it has faced. And they do occasionally have it, the problem in reverse. And the Obama administration certainly got subpoenaed by Republican committees. But it every, just. Every 30 minutes, as I recall, Trey Gowdy yeah. was the head of that parade. It just never gets anywhere, uh, largely because uh, it was recognized usually pretty early on that, that it was a, a an affected pose. And if the Obama administration refused to give up the information, it was usually about some minute detail that, that certainly the Republicans said, you know, that the fate of the republic is in the balance, but nobody else thought so and Nobody else noticed along the way. But we have had that situation a couple of times. And the problem is that, uh, well, the solution there is supposed to be contempt of Congress, either contempt of the, you can hold, the House can hold you in contempt, the Senate can hold you in contempt, that they can jointly hold you in contempt. Uh, but it, it's. But what's that, that mean? 
Yeah, right. Well, that uh, at that point, it's no longer a decision of the committee. It has to. It would literally go to the full body and on the floor of the House or the Senate, and they would then, you know, they they would pass a resolution essentially uh, declaring that they wanted to hold you in contempt. And here's here's the problem. It is a question of what does it mean in practical terms. what it means is uh, just like being held in contempt of court. And quick question: that is a that's a simple majority, or that's a two thirds majority vote. Uh, simple majority for okay. contempt, as I recall. But I, uh, I would I would double check that. But I, I think it's just simply a matter of the uh, the House is author. It's it's a simple majority, and I think it's because what the House is doing is they're authorizing a prosecution for contempt, like being held in contempt of oh, court. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, the the problem with it when uh, either House or the entire Congress de- is dealing with the executive branch and holding in the, them in contempt is that the process for prosecuting contempt of Congress is to refer the case to, generally speaking, <laughs> the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, yep. the Justice Department, in other words. And so the question of whether, for instance, ho- whether the uh, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia will prosecute his boss, the Attorney General, for refusing to hand over information that his boss, the Attorney General, insists. Generally speaking, there is a constitutional reason, you know, or constitutional prohibition uh, against handing that information over, or just simply a general separation of powers issue that the executive branch shall not be compelled to do anything by the uh by the the legislative branch which power isn't explicitly granted in the constitution they simply say on on separation of powers grounds the answer is no and uh, no one has ever taken it i don't think to this point but were that to happen and someone were to ask the judicial branch what they thought of the executive branch refusing to honor the request of the legislative branch to prosecute itself for contempt, the usual answer is, well, that's a political question and we don't answer those. So no one knows how nice. that's resolved. It's a, good, it's a good system. Well, I was also wondering, because, you know, Trump is, apparently we hear, rumor has it, that he's feeling, you know, pretty uh, proud of himself for um, having waded through the Comey book this week and feels confident that he's proven that there's no obstruction and all sorts of other ridiculous things. But he um, is extremely worried about the Michael Cohn, the the um, the process, whatever's going on against Michael Cohn. And that's Southern District of New York. So yeah. this is... Trump's Justice Department moving against Trump's, you know, ally. Yeah. At some point, that's Trump on Trump, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so, I mean, yeah, I guess for all the time that we've spent focusing on when Trump fires either Mueller or Rosenstein, I, I guess there's some question about, I guess you should have one eye on, will he fire Anyone or everyone from the Southern District of New York. Exactly. That's exactly what I was wondering. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, okay. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, or he can attempt to do that. Uh, or, you know, I'm not certain what the process for firing a U.S. attorney 
is uh, in in particular, but certainly he can he can order some whoever it is to uh, carry that process out, and I assume it would be something similar to firing Rosenstein or or, or Mueller. They have, of course, the additional wrinkle of you know various recusals along the way, but right. I, I don't think that I mean certainly uh, at this point Sessions isn't going to make what Donald Trump would call the same mistake twice and recuse himself from being able to fire the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Uh, he knows that... Who has recused himself? Uh, yeah, is that right? Yeah, he's <laughs> so, recused himself. Yeah, the U.S. Yeah. attorney at Southern District has recu- recused himself from the Cone case. Okay. So, well, <laughs> is you know, we're, we're down to a Rod Rosenstein situation there as well. Mm, okay, so that's always always makes it interesting to follow the org charts and and find out who's who's left. Uh, yeah, I mean, but it, it's it's a same thing, parallel situation. You would order whoever it is, and at this point, normally you would say, "I order you, Attorney General, to fire the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York." But here we have to say. I order the acting attorney general for this purpose because of the recusal to fire the acting to, uh, attorney, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York because that guy's recused too. All right. Man. Well, I'm not doing it. And so therefore now we're three deep in, in both organizations to try to find out who will do what. That's just crazy. Well, it's as, it's as messy as I thought it was. And I just – I everybody's talking about the the actual what the memos say and what the committee is doing and I just I simply did not understand some of the underlying process things and oh. and uh, it is as exactly as messy as I thought so thank you for um, <laughs> describing it as best uh, as best you can under the yeah. conditions that exist I guess uh, well uh, there uh, we'll, we'll do this another day perhaps unless uh, unless you have an special extended uh, uh, session available there's a there's a whole other body of contempt precedent that skips oh. the, uh, the the use of the DOJ the the current Uh, Oh, okay. Yes, hang on, because let me sign (laughs) off the the main show, and we'll come back in extra mad and talk about that. So, folks, thanks for joining us today on Netroots Radio. Will and I send out our thanks to our show's editor Michelle Lashore, and especially to you for joining us today. You can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at eight a.m. on Mondays. We're the lead-in for K Grow in the morning. In fact, the full podcast version of our show is free and usually includes an extended interview, which we call Extra Mad. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and most other internet podcast apps. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to, download, or comment on the show there. We do really, really love to receive your comments, and we make every effort to answer them as soon as our day jobs permit. You can find us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will is on Twitter at WillMcLeod99, and I'm there as Arliss Bunny. Hopping Mad is your place on Progressive Radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and, of course, carrots. Until next week, cheers. Next up is K-Grow in the Morning here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad with Extra Mad. David Waldman from Kegro in the Morning is with us today talking to us about the process 
aspects behind the way that Justice Department works with investigative committees in Congress. And now he's going to talk to us a little bit about contempt, something I didn't understand at all. So, yeah. David? Okay. Uh, so uh, I, I offered a little teaser of it, I guess, uh, during the regular program. And uh, there is, I discovered uh, when when looking at this situation during the George W. Bush administration, uh, there were a few uh, instances in which the uh, investigative committees and subcommittees in the House in particular ran into just plain intransigence by uh, members of the Bush administration, the, the executive refusing in a few instances to comply with first simple requests for information by congressional investigators and then even by uh, refusing to reply to subpoenas issued by uh, investigative committees in the House. And it did finally reach the stage where they were considering a full House resolution of contempt. And as we explained during the regular program, uh, in the first instance, the procedure for bringing contempt of Congress charges or contempt of the House charges against a figure in the executive branch is to refer the complaint to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, which is a big problem, of course. If you're asking the U.S. attorney to prosecute his own executive branch or sometimes his own boss, the attorney general, if you're looking for information from the Justice Department, but even if it's from another department, they tend not to really enjoy doing that very much, although, you know, uh, from time to time they do deliver on such things. And we are, as a matter of fact, in the middle of watching the U.S. attorney or or I guess the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York prosecute this case or pursue this case against uh, close confidence of the president or the putative president of the United <laughs> yeah. States, Donald Trump. Um, the vote loser, you mean? Yes, right. The guy, yeah. That's right. Uh, So it does happen from time to time. And uh, but more often than not, when you're talking about actions taken by government officials, supposedly in pursuit of their, you know, their work as government officials, it gets a lot trickier. Uh, There's a lot less willingness to hand over information and a greater or stronger basis in the minds of the government lawyers for resisting uh, requests for or subpoenas for that information. So it gets a little tougher there. And when they fight it out, you find yourself in a, uh, a battle between constitutional immovable objects and constitutional irresistible forces. There's a separation of powers argument that's made by the executive branch that says you're not allowed to tell us legislative branch how to you know what, what we can and can't do you can't send uh legislative troops in to invade the executive domain and uh push us around and take the information there's no there's no reason why we would have to submit to you so the master of arms of the senate or whatever is not going to march over and grab somebody by the collar and drag them in 
not under the modern practice of what they call statutory contempt. And that's exactly what it is. There's a statute on the books that says Congress can prosecute pretty much anyone they want to, anyone they can uh, get the U.S. attorney. And it doesn't have to be the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. It just usually is. And they could technically, I think, uh, enlist the help of any U.S. attorney who would be willing to to do it. But since it's usually going on in D.C. between uh, federal government departments and the Congress, that makes the most sense. Uh, but occasionally another officer might do it. But yes, you, you, you'd use a statute, which I actually don't think I have at the ready, but uh, statutory contempt is defined in the books just like anything else. And uh, you would set a prosecutor on the path of of prosecuting your uh, con- contemnor, uh, the, the person subject to contempt proceedings, um, and the prosecution would proceed in court. Now, when you get into that situation, not only you have the executive branch saying that the legislative branch has no power to push them around on this issue, anybody who would turn to the courts and ask, well, how do you solve a problem like this? would get the answer that this is a political question and you're going to have to solve it at the ballot box. We can't decide or we won't decide as between which of the two elected branches, which don't have any particular power over one another, except for those checks and balances explicitly laid out in the Constitution, we can't decide which one of you is right. Voters are going to have to do that. Does does the, yes. does the precedent set during the Nixon tapes hearings in the Supreme Court apply to any of this? Uh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think through exactly what sort of uh, situation we were in. And I don't know. Because I, I think Congress had, I think they were holding, weren't they, didn't they hold Nixon in contempt? And uh, the Supreme Court then ruled that he had to turn the tapes over? Uh, yeah, you'd have to look at the, uh, I, you know, my recollection of the, of the, the procedure, the uh, posture of the case now is slipping away. And I guess it depends on, uh, well, one, who is asking for the tapes and under what circumstances. And it may just be that, uh, uh, as I recall, it was ultimately the, uh, it was federal prosecutors seeking the tapes. It's a U.S. v. Nixon. Yeah, it's United States v. Nixon, uh, 1974. Yeah. Um, but uh, well, we'll see if we can double back to that. The uh, okay. and it may be that the that things changed in between that case and current statutory contempt uh, jurisprudence, or may have influenced it. Uh, but the the part I was going to get to that I do remember pretty well is there is a uh, there there is at least one possible. Uh, solution to that sort of uh, uh, confrontation between the immovable object and the irresistible force. Congress has reserved for itself and uh, has uh, actually, this one has been tested in the courts, but hasn't been, this is a procedure that hasn't been used in, I would imagine now probably approaching a hundred years or more, but it did get some attention during the George W. Bush administration because of the problems they were running into. Congress reserves to itself an inherent contempt procedure. That is a contempt procedure uh, in which they would not resort to 
delegation of the the prosecution task to the Justice Department, but would instead say, as part of our inherent power to conduct oversight and compel compliance with our oversight, we deem it to be an inherent power of the legislative branch to prosecute you ourselves, just as we might hold a an impeachment court here in Congress and its decision would be binding. We can hold a contempt court here in Congress and actually could send our officers, sergeant at arms of the House or uh, of the Senate, and arrest the contender and hold them. And there actually was, in the original construction of the uh, of the of the Capitol building, jail cells in the basement. Seriously? Yeah. Now I don't know what they use them for now, but uh, in in oh I wait, guess I think they were in days. one of those Dan Brown books. Okay. <laughs> And <laughs> uh, they have done this. And I mean, really, uh, I don't think that anybody has pursued anything like that probably since. And I, I think maybe maybe the parallel is a good one. Teapot Dome, where they've actually sent uh, sergeant at arms and officers of the Capitol. What was I guess the predecessor of the Capitol Police Force out into uh, well into the countryside? They had particular contemners in mind and they wanted to round them up and arrest them and bring them back and i don't believe anybody has ever even been threatened with it for uh well when we were writing about this during the george w bush administration i think it was like 85 87 years or so at that point since it had been used uh the preference is very strong for statutory contempt because this is the sort of thing that makes people say that's just crazy you can't go doing that uh, and it was the kind of thing, certainly during the George W. Bush administration, uh, people, you know, uh, just, just as there were people who would push back on, well, you can't just imp- undo elections by impeaching the president. Sure you can. That was supposed to happen. Right. And, uh, and it's absolutely it's happened in living memory. In fact, it happened just a few years ago. And you seem to have forgotten about that. But sta- but uh, inherent contempt though, is something that really no living person recognizes at all, except having seen it in the history books or in our writing about it, uh, you know, 15 years ago. But it, it does exist. It's a real thing, and you can look it up, and you can find our writing about it uh, still somewhere in the archives at Daily Coast as well. And it just sort of sits out there as the... Uh, ultimate and very logical underpinning of the statutory contempt power. Why should they be able to ask the Department of Justice to prosecute on their behalf? And the answer is because it's a simpler, neater, uh, more understandable alternative to the only logical conclusion that you can draw from any belief that Congress has an oversight power over the executive branch at all which is that they should be able to enforce it if the executive branch refuses. So it's out there and it exists and there's case law on it and examples of people being arrested by the sergeant at arms and everything. But then again, there's also examples of uh, members of Congress caning one another to near death too. So, you know, just because it's happened before doesn't mean it should happen again. (laughs) So how do you, after... After after 2018, if there's a big blue wave, Mm -hmm. 
does it make, I mean, right now, Trump is trying to get this investigation over quickly. Yeah. But there's some logic if there's a big blue wave in the investigation and Mueller hasn't reported out by that time. Then at that point, doesn't Trump's strategy need to flip? Isn't it to his advantage to have the investigation stretch? Because at that point in time, he's trying to keep Democratic investigative committees Mm -hmm. from releasing or looking into or taking information from justice. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And uh, I I guess uh, if it were to come to pass in in that way that uh, he might be advised that uh, you you could – well, you could look at history and say Democrats in Congress tend to get scared off when you say, well, if you were to pursue this any further, there's a real possibility you might jeopardize the ability of the outside prosecution to continue. And you wouldn't want to be responsible – use a third party – for that and you wouldn't want to be responsible for uh, for having the conviction against Donald Trump thrown out, would you? Oh well, <laughs> we might not, and, and you wouldn't. You wouldn't want that. I don't know if it would happen, but you wouldn't want it, and that's typically enough. Uh, as I'm flipping through Wikipedia here, just on inherent contempt, I do see that. Yeah, it looks like the last inherent contempt process used by the Senate in 1934. In a Senate investigation of airlines and the U.S. postmaster. So I don't know. I don't know what they were investigating (laughs) at that point, but 1934. So it's coming up on 100 years. Wow. Okay. Well, there's that. So is there there anything else that you think process-wise is liable to come up in the relatively near future that we should just be sort of primed Mm. for? It seems like... We're having to learn a whole new language about every three days. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, trying to think of anything offhand that uh, that is that might come up that hasn't yet. Uh, not at this point. I mean, I, certainly, uh, I would. I'd be studying up on the contempt procedures and the contempt history, and I guess one of the the fun uh, uh, issues of contempt history. Uh, comes from the the Reagan administration. Uh, it wasn't the first of the Reagan administration uh, authorities that was was uh, prosecuted for or, or had a, uh, a resolution of contempt voted uh, against them. But the most famous one, uh, and that one of them that got the furthest, was the prosecution for contempt of the House of. Ann Gorsuch, the EPA administrator. Oh, my gosh. Who is, of course, the mother of the yes. new minted, <laughs> minted Supreme Court justice. Right. And so he actually, like, was raised, I guess, steeped in, um, you know, what, what to do in those raging battles against a Republican executive and a runaway Democratic Congress, radical Democratic Congress full of communists who want to prosecute the innocent uh, servants of a good Republican president. So that'll be interesting to see if they ever were to uh, finally force the hand of a court to make a decision like that, uh, what uh, Neil Gorsuch would would do in this. Of course, normally people would say, you you have to recuse yourself. Then obviously he would not do that. So 
that will be interesting. Just a fun tidbit uh, to throw in there. Um, you know, I guess uh, apples not falling far from the trees, etc. And uh, by the way, if you hate those stupid political dynasty things, then you're going to hate this one too. Yeah, I suspect we are for a very, very long time. All right, David, thank you so much for taking your time and joining us today on Friday. Hopefully all of this still applies by Monday. God only knows it's that kind of world. We, we just really appreciate both Will and I really appreciate your taking your time today. Uh, I know you have a lot going on, so it's uh, it's much appreciated. Uh, apparently I have to do a show now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, apparently so. Really, only Friday. I'm going to rest up, and then, uh, but by the time you hear this, uh, I'll be underway. All right. That's right. All right. Thanks, Arliss. Thanks, folks. Take care.